And if you've just visited us this morning, or just come this morning, uh, you'll be able to pick it up. I've got a sort of story so far moment, uh, so you'll be able to to pick up where we where we left off last night. Although it's worth saying that we barreled through up to chapter 28 yesterday, so one to 28 <coughs> last night. So my apologies if you are not here. Uh, but it does heat up from chapter 29, uh, and so these two talks this morning, and then the message tomorrow at church will end the book. Lots of things we're missing, lots of things we could do differently, but this is the way it fell out today. I'm going to read scripture, I'm going to start with the New Testament, and then I'm going to read a couple of chapters of Job. So I'm going to start with Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, just three verses, Romans 8, three verses. Romans 8, verse 33. Now I want to read to 39. I keep changing my mind. It's so good, isn't it? It's so good. I want to read 31 to 39. Here we go. What shall we say? But I prepared the Job bit. What shall we say then uh, to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or the sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. Job didn't know all that. Um, He predates the life of Jesus. But he trusted God and battled through it. So let's read from Job chapter 29. Where is Job again? It's just before the Psalms. So if you find the Psalms, Job 29. In my Bible, it's on page 435. So what we're about to read is three chapters. I'll read them fairly quickly, but you can follow with your eyes. I'm used to the NIV, so if I stumble, I... It's just a different translation. All right, here it is. And Job again took up his discourse. This is his final word. And he said, Oh, that I were as in the months of old, as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone on my head, and by his light I walked through darkness as I was in my prime, when the friendship of God was upon my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me, when my children were all around me, when my steps were washed with butter and the rock poured out for me like streams of oil, when I went out to the gate of the city, when I prepared my seat in the square, the young men saw me and withdrew and the aged rose and stood. The princes refrained from talking and laid their hand on their mouth. The voice of the nobles was hushed and their tongue stuck to the roof of their mouth. When the ear heard, it called me blessed. And when the eye saw, it approved, because I delivered the poor who cried for help, and the fatherless who had none to help him. The blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy, and I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and I made him drop his prey from his teeth. Then I thought, 
I shall die in my nest, in my home, and I shall multiply my days as the sand. My roots spread out to the waters with the dew all night on my branches. My glory fresh with me and my bow ever new in my hand. Men listened to me and waited and kept silence for my counsel. After I spoke, they did not speak again, and my word dropped upon them. They waited for me as for the rain, and they opened their mouths as for the spring rain. I smiled on them when they had no confidence, and the light of my face they did not cast down. I chose their way and sat as chief, and I lived like a king among his troops, like one who comforts mourners. But now, you see, but now they laugh at me, men who are younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained to set with the dogs of my flock. What could I gain from the strength of their hands, men whose vigour is gone? Through want and hard hunger, they gnaw the dry ground by night in waste and desolation. They pick stalwart and leaves of bushes and the roots of the broom tree for their food. They are driven out uh, from human company. They shout after them as after a thief. In the gullies of the torrents they must dwell in holes of the earth and of the rocks. Among the bushes they bray, under the nettles they huddle together. A senseless and nameless brood they have been whipped out of the land. And now I have become their song. I am a byword to them. They bore me they keep aloof from me. They do not hesitate to spit at the sight of me because God has loosened my cord and humbled me. They have cast off restraint in my presence. On my right hand, they, the rabble rise. They push away my feet. They cast up against me their ways of destruction. They break my path. They promote my calamity. They need no one to help them as though a wide breach they come among the amid the crash they roll on terrors are turned upon me my honor is pursued as by the wind and my prosperity has passed away like a cloud and now my soul is poured out within me days of affliction have taken hold of me the night racks my bones and the pain that gnaws me takes no rest with great force my garment is disfigured it binds me about like the collar of my tunic. God has cast me into the mud, the mire, and I have become like dust and ashes. I cry to you for help, and you don't answer me. I stand, and you only look at me. You have turned cruel to me with the might of your hand. You persecute me. You lift me up in the wind, and you make me ride on it, and you toss me about in the roar of the storm. For I know that you will bring me to death and to the house appointed for all living. Yet does not one in a heap of ruin, stretch out his hand, and in his disaster cry for help? Did I not hear for him whose days was hard, whose day was hard? Was not my soul grieved for the needy? But when I hoped for good, evil came. When I waited for light, darkness came. My inward parts are in turmoil and never still. Days of affliction come to meet me. I go about darkened and not by the sun. I... I stand up in the assembly and cry for help. I'm a brother of jackals and a companion of ostriches. My skin turns black and falls from me, and my bones burn with the heat. My lyre is turned to mourning and my pipe to the voice of those who weep. I've made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? What would my portion from God above and my heritage from the Almighty on high? What would be my portion from God above and my heritage from the Almighty on high. Is not calamity for the unrighteous and disaster for the workers of iniquity? Does not he see my ways and number all my steps? If I've walked with falsehood and my foot has hastened to deceit, let me be weighed in a just balance and let God know my integrity. If I, if my step has turned aside from the, my way and my heart has gone after my eyes and if any spot has struck my hands, then let, then let me sow and another eat, and let what grows for me be rooted out. If my heart had been enticed towards a woman, if I had <clears throat> lain in wait at my neighbour's door, then let my wife grind for another, and let others bow down for her. For that will be a heinous crime, that will be an iniquity to be punished by the judges, 
for that will be a fire that consumes as far as Abaddon, and it would burn for the root, burn to the root all my increase. If I have rejected the cause of my manservant or my maidservant, when they made or they brought a complaint against me, what then shall I do when God rises up? When he makes iniquity, what shall I answer? Did not he who made me in the womb make him? And did not one fashion us in the womb? The manservant, the maidservant and me, see, all made in my mother's womb. Verse 16, if I have withhold anything that the poor desired, or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail, or have eaten my morsel alone, and the fatherless has not eaten it. For from my youth the fatherless grew up with me as with a, mother, a father, and from my mother's womb I guided the widow. If I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing, or the needy without covering, if his body has not blessed me, and if he was not warmed by the fleece of my sheep, if I have raised my hand against the fatherless because I saw my help in the gate, then let my shoulder blade fall from my shoulder and let my arm be broken from its socket. For I was in terror of calamity from God and I could not have faced his majesty. If I have made gold my trust or called fine gold my confidence, if I have rejoiced because my wealth was abundant or because my hand had found much, if I have looked at the sun when it shone or the moon moving in splendour and my heart had been secretly enticed and my mouth had kissed my hand, this also would be iniquity to be punished by the judges for I would have been false to God above. If I have rejoiced at the ruin of him who hated me or exalted when evil overtook me, I've not let my mouth sin by asking for this life with a curse. If the men of my tent had, have not said, who is there that has not been filled with this meat? The sojourner has not lodged in the street. I have opened my doors to the traveller. If I've concealed my transgressions as others do by hiding my iniquity in my bosom, because I stood in great fear of the multitude and the great contempt and the contempt of families terrified me, so that I kept silence and did not go out of doors. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it on me as a crown. I would give him an account of all my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. If my hand had cried out against me and its furrows have kept wept together, if I have eaten its yield without payment and made its owners breathe their last, then let thorns grow instead of wheat and foul weeds instead of barley. The words of Job are ended. That's it. The next thing that will happen for Job after Elihu's very long speech. <laughs> will be that God will show up and answer his prayer. Do you notice the three chapters are pretty simple, aren't they? <laughs> Despite all the strangeness uh, and apparent complexity. Chapter 30 is, I remember great days of old. Chapter 31 is, but they're all gone now. And chapter 32 is, God, if I've done any of this, then go get at me. But I haven't. So there, I've just taught the Bible. Is that exegesis? <laughs> well, it's broadly speaking. Uh, outline what those chapters mean and say. So, shall I pray? But we'll get into them a little bit more, <coughs> more deeply. Let's pray. Father, we may not always be able to trace your hand, but we trust your heart. So speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. So you have an outline uh, here on page uh, five, if you're writing notes or you just want to know where we are. I'll have the outline on the screen as well. So uh, many of you will know the story. Those who were here last night know the story so far, but in case this is your first time this morning or your first time to the book of Job, 
which is possible. Welcome. The book of Job is an ancient book of the Old Testament, perhaps the oldest book of the Old Testament. And it's about Job and his four friends, whom he calls worthless physicians. They've come to heal, but they've left a bloody mess. Job is a good man who we're told fears God and sons evil. The narrator says that God agrees. But he loses everything in a tsunami of pain and he doesn't know why. And so he sits down in dust and ashes. He sees no rhyme, no reason, no method in the madness. And so he and his friends sit down to a table of a jigsaw puzzle of his life, not literally, trying to piece it together. And Job says the pieces don't fit. The friends say the pieces do fit. You've just got to make them fit. The reader, that's us, is very important in the book of Job. In fact, I said to my wife on the way in, I don't know any other book of the Bible where the reader is so clearly involved. It's dramatic irony because the reader knows something that Job and his friends never find out. And that is that he suffers for a very, very specific reason, which is, by the way, why you can't just look at Job and transfer it to yourself. There's something very specific going on here. That is, that Job, that there's a test, if that's the right word, a test to see if Job fears God for the things, the hedge, the enjoyable and meaningful things in life. Take away the hedge, says the Satan to God in this heavenly court, however that functions. Take away the hedge and he'll do what everybody does. He'll get sad and so he'll curve in on curve in on himself and in the end he'll curse you and die. There's another test going on, of course, which is Satan's test to see if God is wrong about Job. Satan, by the way, is the ultimate cynic. He's like, you know what? I know Job better than you do. And God's like, you don't know Job better than I do. Mm. And that's a victory of God over Satan. We'll explore that tomorrow morning a little bit more in depth. But the obvious question of Job is, would your faith survive if everything was taken away? Could God alone be your hedge? Christ alone your life? Job doesn't give up on God, but he does argue, and he does wrestle, and he does complain. We just heard it a moment ago. The book is for those who believe in God. And who suffer. You believe that God is good. You believe that the universe is just and moral. And that's your problem. That's why you have a problem. You are not with Richard Dawkins. The English atheist. Who famously said. In a universe of blind physical forces. And genetic replication. Some people are going to get hurt. And you won't find any rhyme or reason in it nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties that we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither cares nor knows. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. That's not you. Or maybe it is you, by the way. Uh, and if it is you, by the way, then you don't have Job's problem. You should just say, I got steamrolled, and that's what happens when there's no God. And there's just the universe. And you can dress it up in karma if you like, and go for some wishful thinking. But you, you really, this Job is not your book. Job is your book if you really believe in God, like with deep conviction. There is rhyme and reason, you say. There is method in the madness. There is a divine musical score. And because you believe it, you have a problem. Now, we say there's an end, and that's because we have the gospel of the New Testament. But just stand in Job's shoes for a moment. What do you make of it all? There are eight characters in the book of Job. Can you list them? The Lord. Who else? Satan. Satan. Job. His wife. And four friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and Elihu. Which, by the way, if it was a play, would make a pretty simple, neat play in a small theatre. Except for the storm. The storm would be a problem. 
What they all have in common, all eight of them have in common, is that none of them think the universe is inherently chaotic. And it's that conviction, it comes because of their belief in a divine personal being. I should separate God from that. <laughs> Seven of them all believe in a divine person. God does too. They all believe in God. And that is why they could all subscribe to Martin Luther King Jr.'s thesis that the arc of the universe is long and it bends towards justice. Now, that's precisely something you can't say if you're an atheist. Save wishful thinking and a form of deluded faith, ironically. Those eight characters, they all think there should be rhyme and reason and method and madness and therefore there should be justice and meaning and it's this common belief that they all share that is the cause of friction in the book. Which is another way of saying that the book of Job isn't just about the fact that bad things happen and there are some healthy ways to manage it. In his final words, and after much time and many arguments, Job blurts out from the depths of his heart in chapter 31, verse 35. I wonder if you could say this. In 31, verse 35, this is a key to the whole book. Oh, that I had one to hear me. A day in court. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment, God's indictment, written by my adversary. If I could just have him write down what the problem is. Then I would take that indictment and I would wear it on my shoulder. I would bind it on me as a crown. I think the image here is uh, I'd take his bit of paper where he wrote down everything I've done wrong and I would fold it into a crown and put it on my head. I would give him an account of all my steps like a prince I would approach him. Then in verse 40, the words of Job are ended. He rests his case. He's done. Elihu will speak and then God appears in the storm. It really is man versus storm. You saw... Um, Forrest Gump. Job's final words to God are in chapter 29 to 31, we'll look at today, and they give us a glimpse into these four things. The psychology of grief, the shape of a just life, the theology of suffering, and the basis for a divine challenge. So firstly, the psychology of belief. I think one of the gifts of the Bible is that you get an inner glimpse of the soul battling to rest. I'll say that again. You get an inner glimpse of the soul battling to rest. For example, Job 3, verse 25, what I have feared has come upon me, what I dreaded has happened to me, I have no peace, no quietness, I have no rest, but only turmoil. In today's passage in chapter 30, verse 27, my Inward parts are in turmoil and never still. Days of affliction come to meet me. So you get it here in Job, this inner glimpse of a soul battling to rest. You get it in the Psalms. You get it in the prophets. You get it in Paul. And you get it in Jesus on the cross. And that's a gift of God, by the way. I'm not sure if it's in any other scriptures than the Jewish Christian and Christian scriptures. Now, I am not a psychologist, nor the son of a psychologist, and I'm assuming there'll be psychologists in the room. <laughs> I do not want to speak about my pay grade. That would be ironic. <laughs> that said, I know the suke, the soul, because I have one. I, too, am human. I believe that Job validates your inner struggle by showing you some stages of grief right here in these chapters. The notion of build a bridge and get over it, is silly. It might not be silly to a smaller incident, but it's silly to anybody who can name their suffering as real and painful. And so there's maturity in these words from 29 to 31. Did Job mean to give us stages of grief? I suspect not. It's like a modern imposition onto the text. However, there is a progression for him that's worth noting. You get, and this is in your outline, memory in chapter 29. You get lament in 30. And then you get sort of bargaining, a divine challenge in chapter 31. So first, the memory. He says, once I had dignity. 
Job 29, verse 1. Again, Job took up his discourse and he said, Oh, that I were as in the months of old, as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head, and by his light I walked through darkness. Some of you know that very experience, by the way. Gosh, it was great to be Christian when I first became one in my 20s. It's not like that now. He's doing what you and I might do, yearning for former days when I felt close to God. 29 verse 4. Oh, for when I was in my prime, when the friendship of God was upon my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me and my children were all around me. But something happened. He remembers when he was a respected man about the city. Verse 7. When I went out to the gate of the city, when I prepared my seat in the square, the young men saw me and they withdrew. And the aged rose and stood. Job's in the room. And verse 11, whoever heard me speak, blessed me. He remembers really when he felt invincible. When it would, uh, when all was working according to plan. 29 verse 18. Then I thought, I shall die in my nest. Who hasn't thought that thought, by the way? I'm hoping to die at home. I thought to myself, I shall die in my nest. That's what shall happen. And I shall multiply my days as the sand. My roots spread out to the waters with the dew all night on my branches. My glory fresh with me and my bow ever new in my hand. People thought I was wise. 29 verse 21. Men listened to me and waited and kept silence for my counsel. He was in a boardroom. It's like, Job's about to speak. Just give him some space. Because you know what? He's not just talking. And I made people feel special. I just, you know, I made them feel special. Verse 23, they waited for me as for the rain. And they opened their mouths as for spring rain. I smiled on them when they had no confidence. And the light of my face, they did not cast down. If someone had no confidence, I smiled and they perked up. All of that sort of closing your eyes and remembering the past, in the end, is salt of the wound. Secondly, Job shows us how to lament. He says, I had dignity, now I've lost it. In verse chapter 30, verse 1, every verse reference I'll give for the next little bit is in chapter 30. Verse 1, but now they laugh at me. But now they laugh at me. Men who are younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained to set with the dogs of my flock. These younger people and the dads I wouldn't have let work in the field. I don't think his point is to mock the fathers. I think just the point here is that I used to be the sort of highest of all and now the lowest of people are the ones who are mocking me. Verse 9, now I've become their song and I'm a byword to them. They abhor me. They keep aloof from me. They do not hesitate to spit at the sight of me because God has loosened my cord and he's humbled me. They have cast off restraint in my presence. The lament is honest and beautiful. In verse 26, But when I hoped for good, evil came. And when I waited for light, darkness came. My inward parts are in turmoil and never still. Days of affliction come to meet me. I go about darkened, but not by the sun. I mean, look at that. I go about darkened, but not by the sun. It's not the sun that's darkened. I wonder if those of us who've experienced depression know what that means more than others. I go about darkened, but not by the sun. I stand up in the assembly and cry for help. I am a brother of jackals and a companion of ostriches. I don't know what that means, by the way. <laughs> I have to go and look that up. <laughs> this leads thirdly to a divine challenge. Chapter 30, verse 20. I cry to you for help and you do not answer me. I stand and you only look at me, not doing anything about the problem. You have turned cruel to me with the might of your hand. You persecute me. And since you've done all this, I'm going to lay down a gauntlet. I'm going to force God to speak. Chapter 31, everything now is in 31, verse 4. Does not he see my ways and number all my steps? If I have walked with falsehood, and my foot had hastened to deceit, then, brackets, let me be weighed in just balance, 
and let God know my integrity. In, in the NIV, let God weigh me in honest scales, and he will know that I am blameless. God, you know me. Not that I'm not, I don't sin. Um, but this doesn't meet that, as we talked about yesterday. What, what I'm experiencing isn't, isn't, there's no correlation between the two, as the friends have been saying. Job then prayed this prayer long before it was written in the, uh, the uh, Anglican Book of Common Prayer. Sorry, but it's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> Almighty God, unto whom all hearts be open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hidden. Job believes that. And then in chapter 31, there follows a pattern. Did you notice it? That God, if I've done X, then you should go ahead and do Y. If I've done X, a sin, then you should go ahead and do Y, which is a punishment for that sin. Implication, you'll punish me, but you'll see that I haven't done X. You'll know me. So you'll see it in verse 7. If my step had turned away, turned aside from the way, and my heart had gone after my eyes, you know, just gone and gobbled up the things I coveted. And if any spot has struck, stuck to my hands, then let me sow and another eat. And let what grows from me be rooted out. He says in this pattern, you could even look at my sexual desires. In verse 9, if my heart had been enticed towards a woman and I had have lain in wait at my neighbour's door right, with intent, then if that were true, then let my wife grind for another and let others bow down on her. For that would be a heinous crime if that happened. It would be a heinous crime for me to have done that and for this to take place. That would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges. That's not me. But it's not classic ideas of purity either. It's also justice too. I've treated my servants well. Look at verse 13. If I have rejected the cause of my manservant or my maidservant when they brought a complaint against me, they got the servants, come and bring a complaint. And if I just dismissed it out of hand, you see, no, I'm not going to do that. There's greed and idolatry in verse 24. If I have made gold my trust or called fine gold my confidence, if I have rejoiced because my wealth was abundant, down to verse 28, this also would have been an iniquity to be punished by the judges for I would have been false to God above. And there's no schadenfreude either, you know, laughing at someone else's misfortune. Verse 29, if I have rejoiced at the ruin of him who hated me, or exalted or gloated when evil overtook him, I didn't do that. And there are no secret sins to speak of, he says. Verse 33, if I have concealed my transgressions as others do, by hiding my iniquity in my heart, because I stood in great fear of the multitude... There's even a sense that I treated the environment well, which is fascinating, isn't it? There's a sense in the Jewish scriptures of, of treating the land properly, of letting it lie fallow for a season, for it to renew. Verse 38, if my, hand had, if my land has cried out against me. Verse 39, if I've eaten its year without payment, without taking care of it. Verse 40, let thorns grow instead of wheat and foul weeds instead of barley. The words of Job are ended. You see, what's being said here is, God, if you can show me the solid line between my sin and my suffering, I'll cop it. So show me the links. Show me how the pieces fit. Hence his cry in verse 35, Oh, that I have one to hear me. Here's my signature. Give me a pen. Who's got a pen? I need to sign the document. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had his indictment written down. Oh, the psychology of it all, right? The sukkah. What a model for us in times of trouble. You can pray such prayers in agony. Jesus did. Jesus said, my God, my God, why, why hast thou forsaken me? Borrowing the words of Psalm 22. Now, there's more to be said about that. But I addressed that on summer camp in 2008. <laughs> I think there are tapes. <laughs> I think it's tapes. <laughs> Uh, we looked at that in Habakkuk, same, same sort of idea. So there you go. Secondly, the shape of a just life. Chapter 29 formed the foundation for Timothy Keller's book in New York City called Generous 
justice. And for good reason, chapter 29, they outline what fearing God and shunning evil looks like. Up to this point, we believe, we just believe the comment that it's, that it's true about Job. We take it on faith. God says it. He fears God and shuns evil. But what does it mean to fear God and shun evil? Now, admittedly, these are Job's own words. And they're said in pain. His friends don't like him saying it. The sort of things he says in chapter 29 and 31. Well, the whole chapter here, Elihu is particularly annoyed at him. But if you look closely, you'll see a whole raft of remarkable heart actions, the shape of a just life. You'll see actions towards the poor and the fatherless. 29 verse 12, I delivered the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to help him. You'll see that. You'll see visiting the dying. In 29 verse 13, the blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me. I visited those who were dying and I, the cause of the widow's heart and I caused the widow's heart for sin to joy. I took care of her after visiting her dying husband. You'll see care for those with disability. In 29 verse 15, I was eyes to the blind, walk with me this way. I was feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. Together with actions of justice in court, I think that's what 29 verse 17 is about. I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and I made him drop his prey from his teeth. I did what was necessary to stop abuse taking place. You know, I called the cops and turned up and I stopped it. That sort of idea. And thousands of years ago, you also get the Christian basis of justice that God has made us all in his image simply by being born. 31 verse 13, 31 verse 13, if I've rejected the cause of my manservant or maidservant when they brought a complaint to me, what then shall I do when God rises up if I just dismiss their complaint out of hand because I have the power over them? Verse 15, did not he who made me in the womb make him my manservant? Slave and master, God made us both. Right? The same, I mean, in the Christian scriptures, in the, in the Gospels, we have another reason to treat slave and, and master the same way. Uh, namely, the, the, that you're both bought by the precious blood of Christ. That's the argument in, of Paul in Philemon. Verse 15, did not he who made me in the womb make him also, and did not one fashion us both in the womb? Unless you think it's only about social justice, if I can even use that phrase, I don't yeah. And not about who you sleep with. You know, oh, I believe in social justice and all this private stuff I don't care about. Well, that's not true either in Job. Who you sleep with matters. Um, the porn you watch matters and God sees it. You see. 31 verse 1. I made a covenant with my eyes. I mean, they've got um, software based on this verse. A covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? What will be my portion from God above and my heritage from the Almighty on high? Verse 4, does he not see my ways and number all my steps? Well, one thing you could say of these verses is God is not from the left or the, from the right, he's from above. You've heard that before? Not from the left or the right, but from above. In other words, what you do matters. How you relate to others matters. The pursuit of holiness and the care of the poor matters. Okay, that's second thing. The book also offers a remarkable glimpse into the theology of suffering. Now, I'm forming this thought, by the way, so you can ask me afterwards, but I'm, you know, I think this is where somebody's going to say, oh, wait a minute, I'm not sure if I believe that, and I'm okay with that. Let's just play around with that. <laughs> the friends come along, and, uh, and they want to draw hard lines, or two dimensions, but there's always depth in God, right? The prologue to the book of Job in the Geneva Bible, 1560, says this, These friends come unto him under pretense of consolation, or comfort, and yet they tormented him more than did all his affliction. Like the friends were worse than the affliction. I don't know if that's true, but I like the idea. Why? The answer is because the friends have a neat grasp of God. You might argue two-dimensional grasp of God. H.L. Menchken, I've only seen him written, so I don't know how to say it. He says this, explanations exist. They've existed for all time. 
There is always a well-known solution to every human problem, neat, plausible, and wrong. <laughs> and that's the friends, as I mentioned yesterday. That's where the quote comes from. If you're experiencing suffering, then you must, this kind of suffering, you must have sinned this much. That's how the puzzle works. That's what the friends say. But they are wrong. They don't know what you and the reader knows. They needed humility. That was yesterday's talk. And so they become worthless physicians. Not that what they say is all wrong. It'd be interesting to go through. I chatted with the young man in the, the flanny. He looked like so terribly Washington State to me. You know? <laughs> <laughs> just looked great. I had a chat him afterwards and say, it would be interesting to work out what percentage of the friend's words are actually correct. Yeah, I'm just guessing. Maybe 80% of them are actually probably true. You know, you reap what you sow. Paul says that's true. But the problem is they're making a link they can't make. It's their conclusions that are problematic. And here's the, in, here's the thing. In the end, while the friends are important, you need God. You're going to have to go to God when you suffer and not your friends, nor even the cause of your suffering. It's very important, by the way, because you, if you're going just to your friends, you'll find that they'll let you down. And that's an easy path away from God because bitterness takes root. My friends sucked. <laughs> you know, they're, they're going to at points, even the well-intentioned ones. Job 1 and 2 are ancient but profound. Why? Because in these chapters, Satan makes the claim that Job only fears God for the hedge. And God says, okay, you can take down the hedge. You take it down. But spare his life. You take it down. God says it twice. And each time, Satan goes away to do it. Now, I don't want to, you know, there's something unique going on here, so I really don't want to say that this is what's happening in all circumstances. I really don't want to say that. And yet the book has this nuance that's presented to us. The book doesn't allow you to think of Satan as having the power, nor of God as losing it. No, God is sovereign here. That's why Job has to go to God. If Satan were the one doing the work, then, you know, and this is in pagan culture, then Satan would go, Job would say, okay, it's Satan who's done it to me, I better pray to Satan. Because Satan's the one doing it, he's the one who can stop it, so I better go to Satan. That's paganism. You go to find the God with power and you pray to them. But in the Jewish scriptures, in the Christian scriptures, God is sovereign. But the reader isn't allowed to say, God went out to inflict the source. There's a nuance going on here in this path, a third dimension, depth to it all. One commentator said, there is no smoking gun in God's hand. Interesting, isn't it? So what you get is this. No matter what, go to God, he's sovereign. Go to him and not to Satan. To some extent, leave Satan out of the picture. I mean, the rest of the book of Job does. He's dropped. Unless you take the thesis made in one of the books I read, which is that the Leviathan that we'll meet tomorrow morning is Satan, this monster who can be tamed by God. James says of Satan, resist him, sure, and he'll flee from you. In other words, he's not that powerful. But in the end, all suffering means that your attention has to go to God. Peter writes, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time, cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. But you won't be able to blame God either. In Job, God holds no smoking gun. Here, he doesn't directly send these calamities on this innocent one. God is not cruel as Dawkins' universe appears to be and as Richard Dawkins would claim of God. Because Richard Dawkins reads the Bible in order to discredit it, so he reads it in two dimensions and misses the depth of it. He, does it to, he reads it in two dimensions in order to mock it. And yet Job can say, shall we accept good from the Lord and not also trouble, calamity, evil? He's good, so you can go to him. It's just a little touch in on that. Lastly, the basis for divine challenge in chapter 31. Norman Habel, in his commentary, writes this. Periodically, each of us likes to play to look for the whimsical in the world. Is that true? 
But there is very little humour, frolic or serendipity in Job. His cries are deadly serious. Yet the close of Job's final speech has a touch of humour, ironic though it may be. Where is the humour? In chapter 31, verse 35, oh, that I had the indictment. Everyone with me? The, the, the thing I've done wrong served to me. I want to see the papers that you served to me. Oh, that I had the indictment written down by my adversary, by God. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I'd fold it up and wear the indictment like a crown. Hello. <laughs> I've heard it all. The pieces don't fit. There's something we're all missing. You know, if he came and put his charge against me, I'd wear it like a paper hat. Like a prince, I would approach him. This is Job right up to the edge. And the debate, and we'll, we can all have the debate, is does he go over the edge or not? I mean, that's, that is the question. My personal belief is he goes right to the edge because of chapter 42. <clears throat> he says, I rest my case, I want my day in court. Be careful what you wish for. <laughs> <laughs> the basis for this kind of bold prayer is the grace of God. You won't find it anywhere else but this God, this way of approaching God. He knows you. He cares for you. He sees your pain. He knows that you're in the dust and the ashes. And in the end, this kind of prayer, often in faith, God accepts. You know the grumbling of Israel in the desert? You know the problem with the grumbling of Israel in the desert? Deuteronomy 1 verse 26. They did it in their tents. That's the problem. In other words, they went away from God and just mumbled about him. But the psalmists, the prophets, Job, Paul, Jesus, when they came to God with agony, God heard their cry. I don't believe that Job had sinned. There's just no, there was no known reason for the suffering. And so he just battled with that. But he remained standing. Job's final speech here before God speaks has four gifts to us. First, your emotions are validated. So be honest before God. Your emotions are validated. Be honest before God. Second, your life, your deeds have been noticed. God sees. Be just. Third, your God is good. Don't avoid him. Run to him. Fourth, he has come to you as a mediator. Jesus Christ lived a fully just life. If I can put it this way, Jesus is the ultimate Job who can say, I was guide to the blind. I lived a just life. A fully obedient life. And yet Jesus Christ came to sit with us in the dust and ashes of my suffering and indeed my sin. He came to sit in the dust and ashes of my death in order, in resurrection, to lift me out. Which is why the Apostle Paul can write, in Romans 8, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. But we'll explore that in the next, the final two talks. Shall I pray? Father, there is something profound in these verses, and I would pray that we might learn from them and grow in them. We thank you that bold honesty is something that you embrace, you hear, um, you listen to, when done in faith, face towards you and not away from you. Father, help us not to go to our tents and grumble, but rather to go to you in prayer. And to really wrestle with the experiences that we have in life. And Father, if we've not experienced such suffering, uh, then I pray that in studying these words, we might be ready for such a time. We pray this in, Jesus, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Do I have like one or two questions, or do you want me to just move on? Okay. Honor. Hi. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, please. <laughs> the four the four that you mentioned. First, be. <laughs> <laughs>
Your emotions are validated. Your emotions are validated in the book of Job and by God. Your life has been noticed. Your deeds are noticed. Your God is good. So run to him. And he's come to you in the person of Jesus Christ. Because he comes as a mediator. That, we haven't got there yet. I've, I get ahead of myself. <laughs> that happens next. <coughs> this talk was originally given as a standalone, waiting seven more days for church. You know. So I had to conclude the gospel in some form. <laughs> so, but of course, the next talk moves further in that space. Any other questions or comments? We'll try and leave enough time at the end to finish before 11. Yes. Matt, can I have your name? Uh, name, yeah. Hi, Tom. Tom, get it, Tom. Uh, yeah. My question is, um, how do you communicate to people that God is doing in spite of the fact that he has a prerogative to make people suffer for his glory? So it seems like a lot of people have an issue with that. Yeah. They, they, they try to offload all suffering on Satan to exclude God. Yeah. Well, you don't want to offload it onto Satan. <laughs> um, What's the question? Oh, the question is, how do you speak to someone who doesn't believe in God, I presume, and, uh, and testify to the fact that he's good when he appears here to have the prerogative of causing people to suffer? Okay, is that right? Something like that? Okay. I mean, you're right at the heart of one of the biggest questions that a person can ever ask and have answered. So any comment I make... You know, a few sentences are not going not to suffice. Uh, but certainly there are resources to give to people. One of the things I like to say to people is, uh, especially if they are ready to dismiss God because of suffering, I say, you, don't, you, you want to dismiss God for like, what is possibly the most central question to the book of the whole Bible. Well, it's not, it's not central. Central is, who is Lord? It's number two or three. Um, you know, how are you going to handle suffering is like at the heart of every page of the book of the Bible. So if you're willing to dismiss God for the question of suffering, you misunderstood the rest of the entire Bible. Something to say. Certainly, by the way, you want to first, Job would tell you, you want to first find out if there's something real going on in their life that would make them doubt God because of suffering. There might be genuine suffering in their life and I think that's worth finding out and you only find that out by love and curiosity. Um, or question asking. Mm. And then I think I would invite them to death and not shallow, shallowness. Um, to invite them to genuinely consider their question mm. and to consider the fact that millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of people suffer and still believe that God is good. So that, you know, to actually ask them to say, well, do you, do you know how they reconcile? And to invite them to such depth. I mean, there's just a, way, a couple of ways forward. But it's not easy, by the way. When someone's closed, they're not ready to open. You know, and help, helping them to remain open is good. Of course, the primary thing to say is the thing we believe about our Lord and Saviour is that he suffered. Right at the very heart of the Christian gospel is Son of God, God the Son, suffering, you know, going to a grave. So if, if you think that the God avoids the grave, then you are badly mistaken. Okay, this is a few ways forward. All right. I think we'll have more time at, at the end because you want to have 10, 15 minutes yeah, at the end. Yeah, 10 minutes, time to break, use the restroom, grab some food, and we'll do that.